Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, as we continue our study through this fascinating book of the Old Testament. While you're finding Hebrews 10, I want to remind you that the writer of Hebrews is addressing his thoughts, these truths, to Jews who have become Christians. They're from the Jewish faith. They've had these traditions all their life. Their families had these traditions. This is what they were taught. The temple, by the way, this is 65 AD when he's writing. The temple still is, exists, and it's in full swing. There are sacrifices being made every day at the temple, and every year on the day of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, they come, and they have this big celebration, a solemn uh, time of coming, and uh, the priest going into the, to the uh, Holy of Holies and sacrificing on behalf of the nation. This is still going on. And so here are people who have come to Christ, but their friends and their family, they're saying, you know what, what's the sacrifice going to hurt? We've been doing it for years. These are traditions we've had. So you need to come and you need to keep sacrificing and you need to continue to, 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 to keep the Old Testament laws and regulations and rituals. And that's what some of these believers were facing. So the writer over and over and over again is saying, Jesus is it. He's all you need. You don't have to go sacrifice anymore. For one time, for all time, he has become the sacrifice for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he says this, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the one who initiated, and he completed this, and he sat down. His work is done. But old habits die hard, don't they? And we know that. Some of you are from backgrounds where you have been involved in impressive ceremonies and, 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 and generations of traditions, just like these readers. And old habits are hard to break. And so the writer over and over in Hebrews has been telling us that Jesus is greater than all these, that Jesus is supreme. And he continues to tell us that today as we look at our passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, to set the context for this passage, let's go back and look at a verse uh, we looked at last time, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away the word annulment, annul sin by the sacrifice of himself. And today in chapter 10, these first four verses, the writer's going to tell us the reason behind that, the basis for that. So let's look at chapter uh, 10, verse 1. For since the law has but, a, it has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The good things to come, the writer is talking about in this passage, is Jesus. He has come. And the good things that Jesus has brought is he is now our high priest. We don't have to go through any person anymore. We don't have to go through the priest at the temple. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus became the sacrifice for us. He didn't bring a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. He presented himself as the sacrifice. Jesus is our mediator, we learned last time. Jesus is the one who is our arbitrator between God. He lives to intercede for us. And Jesus, again, is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started it. He's the one who completes it. That is 
Those are the good things that have come. Now the law was but a shadow of those good things. The law is all the Old Testament. And all the Old Testament with its rituals, with its, with its sacrifices, with the high priest, with all the stuff of the old law, that was but a shadow of the good things to come. Now when you see a shadow, what's one thing you know? Right? You're in your room. Maybe you have a lamp on. You're reading. Whatever you're doing. And you see a shadow. You know that something is producing the shadow, right? There is substance behind the shadow. And when that substance shows up, when that person shows up, the shadow becomes irrelevant. You don't need the shadow anymore. The substance is there. The reality is there. That's what the writer is saying. The law was but a shadow. It was a silhouette. It was just a pale shadow that something was coming, and now the reality is here. Paul says it best in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. These are the, He's talking about the Old Testament rituals. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance, what? Belongs to Christ. He's the real deal. He's the substance. He's here, and we don't need the shadow anymore. The law, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. It was never intended to do that. It can never do that. Year after year, people bring sacrifices. And when they bring the sacrifice this year, they are proclaiming that last year's sacrifice was inadequate. If it was inadequate, they wouldn't have to bring a new sacrifice. And knowing that they're given a sacrifice this year and they got to give another sacrifice next year, their present sacrifice is inadequate. The Old Testament never could do what only Jesus could do. The writer nails that in verse 4. For it is impossible, not hard, not difficult, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cause the state of sin, the condition of sin, to cease. Now here's a question then. Begs a question, doesn't it? If, if the sacrificial system, if the animal sacrifice could, was impossible for the animal sacrifice to take away sin, why did God institute the animal sacrifice in the first place? Well, a couple reasons. There's probably more. Let's look at two. First, back in Genesis chapter 2, God said what? To Adam and Eve. I got every, you got everything you need. There, you don't need anything else. There's this tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat of that tree. You don't, have, you don't need to, but don't eat of that tree. The day you eat it, you shall surely what? Die. Death there is not just physical death. It's spiritual death and eternal death as well. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree, and death enters into the world. They understand now that they are naked and they're ashamed. And remember, <clears throat> to clothe them, what does God do? He gives them clothes of skin. He put to death an animal. Why? Because sin deserves death. So in his grace, by the way, it's not the law in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament. It's always been grace. By his grace, God says, I'm going to put to death an animal so you can live. That animal is your substitute. That animal is going to atone for your sins, not perfectly and forever. You say, well, killing an animal, that's pretty serious. Why would God do that? Because of his wrath on sin, sin deserves death. The penalty of sin is death. And he allows, an, in his grace, he allows an animal to die instead of the worshiper. That's the first part. But the second part is this. <clears throat> the animal sacri- sacrifices 
were just a shadow. They just got us ready. They're a reminder that something was coming, not an animal sacrifice, not something you had to do year after year after year. But Jesus was coming, foreshadowing of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the one-time-for-all-time sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world. And now he has come. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, look at that verse. The writer now, again, he's a master of the Old Testament. He's used the Old Testament throughout to prove to the, his Jewish audience that Jesus was who he said he is. Now he's going to use Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 40, 6 through 8, to show again that this was not an afterthought, that Jesus' coming was not an afterthought, but the coming of Jesus was purposed all along. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, it's interesting. When you look at the Old Testament, some of the prophecies have two fulfillments, a double fulfillment. Sometimes they're fulfilled right there at that time, but then they also point to Christ. And it's interesting here what the author does. He puts Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. It was written by David. He puts it in the mouth of Christ. He says, he, he puts it as if this psalm is coming from the lips of Jesus. Look what he says uh, in chapter 5. Consequently, when, or chapter 10, verse 5, consequently, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Christ said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have given to me. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. The purpose of animal sacrifices, again, that was a foreshadowing. That was to get us ready. They were repeated over and over again. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. What are we talking about there? Talking about the incarnation, right? Right back in, way back in the Psalms. The incarnation. Jesus is going to come. God himself is going to come in a body. Look at the next verse, chapter uh, uh, 10, verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Now, that does not mean God rejected the Old Testament way. He didn't mean uh, the Old Testament wasn't a good way for its time. He simply means that burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure in if they are given in a mechanical, uh, mindless a performance, a ritual, and, and liturgy without heart. So the Old Testament uh, worshiper would come to God. He would do the burnt offering. He would do the sacrifices. He would kind of do the checkbox of religion, and then he'd go home. And God said, I don't want those type of offerings. He doesn't want those today, does he? And sometimes we can get tied up into a, a checkbox religion. We go to church, did our job. We read the Bible today, we did our job. God says, I don't want that. I want your heart. I want you. I want all of you. That uh, truth, that burnt offerings and, and sacrifices, God takes no pleasure. It's found throughout the Old Testament. First uh, Samuel 15, uh, Isaiah 1, Hosea 6, uh, 6, Amos 5, Micah 6. And let me give you one example in Psalm 51, uh, verses 16 and 17. David has sinned against God. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's been discovered. He's been found out. Nathan the prophet goes and confronts him. Now, Psalm 51 is David's prayer of forgiveness. And it's a beautiful, powerful prayer of forgiveness. Verses 16 and 17, he says, For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I'd give it. Man, if there was a, if there was a sacrifice I could give you and cleanse my heart, I would do it in a second. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. If there was a burnt offering I could give... 
I would do it. But the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. That's what God's been after all along. After a heart. He wants a heart. The heart that he cleanses, transforms. The heart that he renews. The heart that he gives us to live this life that pleases him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, still talking about Christ, still in the Psalms, I have come to do your will, O God. What's the will of God for Jesus? Was it for him to become a great teacher? He was a great teacher for sure, but not that. Was it for him to become a great leader? He was a tremendous leader. Man, you can learn all kinds of principles of leadership from Jesus, but he didn't come to be a great leader. Why did he come? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. John the Baptist, uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, points to Jesus, introduces him to us and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And this was not an afterthought. This was not, oh, the Old Testament sacrifices didn't work. i got to do something else. This has always been God's plan. Jesus says it, quoting the Psalms, As it is written, I've come to do your will, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. In all the Old Testament, all the Old Testament proclaimed who I was, the need for me coming, and that I was coming, it was written in the scroll of the book. All the Old Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this great story about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? His two disciples are going to Emmaus. It's after Jesus has been crucified on the cross. And Emmaus is a town about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're headed there. Jesus now has been raised from the dead. And he walks with these two disciples. And he keeps it from them who he is. They don't recognize him. They can't recognize him. And so he's asking, what's going on? And they said, man, what, what do you mean what's going on? Where, where have you been? This Jesus, this one we were following, I mean, all Jerusalem's talking about this. This Jesus, the one we were following, they put him on a cross. They killed him. And then some ladies went to the tomb. He's not there. We don't know where he is. We don't know if, we don't know if he's risen from the dead. We don't know if someone stole his body. We don't know what happened. Then in Luke 24, 25, Jesus says this. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all all the prophets have spoken. All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Man, would you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't it be cool to be walking and let Jesus take you through a survey of the Old Testament to say, 
that verse was about me, and that verse was about me. Hey, that verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, right after the sin, where God says, uh, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but, but, but I'm going to send one to crush his head. That was about me, proto-evangelicum. That was the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And then he goes through the whole scripture, Moses and the prophets, to say, that was about me, that was about me, that was about me. All of scripture proclaiming who Jesus was. So the writer is giving us that basis, and now, because of what Jesus did, he's going to tell us who we are. He's going to tell us three things about ourselves. And here's what I want to do. At the end of your aisles, don't worry about this now, but at the end of your aisles, there's going to be a piece of paper. And we're going to learn today that we are sanctified. We're going to talk about what that means. We are perfected. We're going to talk about that, what that means. And we are forgiven. And we're going to relish what that means. And we're going to talk about what it means for us to apply those things to our lives. At the end of the service, here in the South Hills, in Ross Traver, you'll do some different things. Other campuses may do some different things here. But we're going to be able to come. And I want you, I want you to write down what is holding you back. After we go through these, these beautiful truths of Scripture, what is holding you back from a full-out, full-orbed following of Jesus Christ? What's holding you back from being the person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl that God is calling you to be, that he's made you to be? So be thinking about that question now as we go through these. First of all, because of Jesus, believers are sanctified. Look at chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus does away with the first, the old covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. And by this, and by that will, we have been, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because of Jesus, we have been sanctified. Let me, let me show it to you like this. Here we are. I'm going to get a blank screen here. Uh, we are, we trusted in Christ, right? We come to the time in our life where we say, look, God, you tell me I'm a sinner, and I believe it. You tell me I can't earn my way to you, and I believe it. You tell me that the wages of my sin is eternal separation from you, I believe it. You told me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. He bore my sins on his body in his body, on the cross. And I believe that. I am trusting, by faith, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for my sins so I can have a relationship with you. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? And the moment we do that, we are justified. Justified is a legal term. God looks at us and says, you're right. That's the promise I gave you. You're trusting in my son by faith. You are justified. You are not Guilty. Not guilty. You are free. You are clear. Not because of who you are, but because of your trust in my son. I am looking at my son. I'm applying that to you. Not guilty. At the same time, we become Did I spell that right? Did did I? I'm not sure. Sanctified, right? We become sanctified. The word sanctified means to make Holy. So God looks at us. He says, you are not guilty, and you are 
holy. You are set apart for me. I got great things to do with you. I got great works prepared for you. You're my workmanship, created to do the good works that I called you to do in Christ Jesus. Man, this is going to be an exciting journey. I have set you apart. You are holy. It's the word agiazo. It's used in uh, different forms. Uh, Sometimes it's used uh, saints. You are a saint. So you don't have to die, and then 400 years later, because of something you did when you were living, they name you a saint. You are a saint right now. You may not feel like it. may not even look like it. But you are a saint right now. You are sanctified. Done deal, right? You have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. Now, this gets cool. Look at verse 10 compared to verse 14. So, by that will, we have been sanctified. Done deal. For, verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected those who are what? Being sanctified. Now, that's interesting. We are sanctified, but we are being sanctified. So back to the uh, chart here, if you will. This is positional. That sanctification is positional. Our position is in Christ. Nothing can change that. That's our position. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy. Now, we live our life, right? And man, there are some ups and downs along the way. Sometimes we have great times of obedience. Sometimes we have great failures. Then we go to heaven. But over the long haul, we see growth. And this would be called progressive sanctification. Or we could just call it spiritual growth. We are growing in our walk with Christ. We are progressing in that. So the question is, are we further along today than we were yesterday? Are we further along this year than we were last year? Are we growing in our walk with Christ? Now, the process of sanctification takes place when we submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We can't do anything on our own, but it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us, and with His empowerment, we partner with Him to grow in our Christian life. And we here at the Bible Chapel, we say the essentials of spiritual growth, we call them the five essentials, these five things, word, worship, connect, serve, share you got to be in God's Word at least four times a week. No excuses. You're not going to grow unless you're in God's Word. You've got to be in God's Word. And you got to figure out how you're going to do that in your life. Maybe that's something you're going to jot down on that slip of paper in a little bit. you got to be a worshiper. Not just coming and singing songs on a Sunday. That's great. It's a great time, isn't it? But worship is responding to God, daily responding to God's grace in my life. Responding daily to God's eternal grace. So when we leave here and you hit 19, or if you're in Ross Traver, you hit the highway, right? And someone pulls in front of you, now we get to see worship, right? <laughs> Man, when, years ago, I would honk and embarrass my kids, and, and then you always pull up beside the person and look at them a little bit, right? You've done it. Don't act like you haven't done it. And then I would do that, and it would be some of you guys, and I'd say, oh, my goodness. i gotta stop. I got to stop doing that. That's worship. Every day, connected. If you are a believer here today and you're alone, 
and you say, I don't have another believer in my life to challenge me, to encourage me, to sharpen me, you're in a dangerous situation. Word, worship, connect, serve. First Peter 4.10 says every believer has a gift and should use it to serve others. You need to find your place of service. Not 10 places of service, but your specific place of service. And by the way, going to a Bible study is not serving any more than, than sitting at a gas station is taking a trip. You just get filled up, right? You're getting ready for the destination. You're getting ready for the service. So where are you going to serve? Maybe you're not growing because you're not serving. And the last one is sharing the message of Christ. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. When's the last time you told someone about Jesus? You're pretty excited about the Steelers, don't we? Tell a lot of people about the Steelers. Tell a lot of people about fantasy football leagues that we're in. We get fired up about a lot of stuff that isn't really that important. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. That's what it takes to grow. And we can't go through some mechanical, mindless, ritualistic religion and expect to grow. We are sanctified, done deal. Can't be any more sanctified. If you're a believer, you can't be any more sanctified than you already are positionally. But in the process, in the progress of your life, spiritual growth, how are you doing? And what do you need to grow? What is it you, you're going to do to grow? Next one, because of Jesus we are perfected. Look at uh, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Jesus had offered for all time single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are perfected. Now, what what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean we're perfect or sinless. It means this. Jesus, the work he did in us, is full and complete. He, He fully accomplished the work of salvation. We can't add one thing to it. The word here is the word telos. It's, it's, it's a form of the same word that Jesus uses when he's at the cro- on the cross when he says, it is finished, to die. It is finished, paid in full. There's nothing anyone can do to add to this. Your baptism doesn't add to it. Confirmation class doesn't add to it. Communion, it doesn't add to it. Your good works don't add to it. Some, second, some people teach a second work of grace. That doesn't add to it. The work of Jesus is finally and fully perfected. It is complete. Isn't that good news? The pressure's off. It's called grace. I don't add anything to the work that Jesus has done for me. That's where my security comes from. That's where my assurance comes from. That's where my confidence comes from. If I had to add something to it, I'd always be wondering what I had to add, right? But it's final. It's full. It's complete. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote another book called Grace Abounding. 
And he writes a, a passage from that book uh, as if God is speaking to man. Here's what he says. Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities I cannot save your soul? But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on you, and will deal with you according as I am pleased with him. And we know that the writer has been telling us in Hebrews 1, in Hebrews 8, in Hebrews 10, in Hebrews 12, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. God is pleased with what Jesus did. It is done. It is final. It is full. And we can rest in what Jesus has accomplished for us. So how are you doing in that rest? How are you doing as a perfected believer that can add nothing to the work of Christ. One more thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 uh, through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, now he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, and I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Will you read that with me? I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Just one more time. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering of sin. That's the third thing. Not only are we sanctified, not only are we perfected, we are forgiven. Aren't you glad of that? The word forgiven means to release from captivity. Pardon, cancellation of obligation, cancellation of punishment, cancellation of guilt. And the work of Jesus on the cross canceled the debt finally and forever. Paul says it this way in Colossians. I love the way he says it. You were dead in your trespasses. You couldn't reach God. You were a spiritual corpse then what did God do? It's all God's work, isn't it? He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all the trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's justification, not guilty. This he did. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that picture. Not guilty because Jesus, I'm nailing it to the cross. Jesus is paying for your sin. And that's why you can be forgiven. There are a lot of believers who are paralyzed by past sin. They are convinced that God will not use them because of what they've done in their past. I want to tell you some good news today. Your sins are forgiven and God promises what? I will remember your sins no more. Let me show you two things. Back to the chart. Here's what happens. Here we stand. God says the penalty of sin is death, right? And so you're either going to take that on your own, eternal separation from him forever. It's called hell. Or you're going to trust in Jesus, and it's Jesus who took God's wrath for you. He died so we could live. He took God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. We're forgiven. That forgiveness there is the penalty of sin. We are forgiven from the penalty of sin one time for all time. 
never have to go back and say, God, forgive me again. I want to trust in you again. I'm going to trust in your son again. We are forgiven. Now, as we live our life, we're not perfect, right? And so we're going to sin. Now, it's not talking about the penalty of sin, but our propensity to sin. And this forgiveness here, jot down 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 is written to believers. And 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we, or first, uh, 1, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Penalty sin is gone, but we still, the sin is not eradicated in our life. If we confess our sins, here's the great news. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The penalty of sin's done. We're forgiven. Now, as we live our life, John 1 9 kicks in. We're believers. We're going to sin. I'm going to say something I shouldn't say. I'm going to do something I shouldn't do. I'm going to think something I shouldn't think. I'm still a believer. The penalty of my sin is gone. If I died right then, while I'm thinking that terrible thought, I'm going to go to heaven. But if I continue to live in sin, I'm going to, I'm, my, my relationship with the Lord, my fellowship with the Lord is going to be impacted in a negative way. So I want to keep that list of sins short. Every day we should say, God, help me review my day. Yeah, shouldn't have said that. Please forgive me. I'm confessing my sin to you, and I've got to go talk to that person tomorrow. My thought life, man, I, took a, took a, I went south today for a while. Lord, I am sorry. You convicted me right then. Now I am confessing it before you. Something I did, I'm sorry. Keep a short list of sin. That makes sense? The penalty of sin is gone, is done, taken care of. Our propensity to sin remains. And now to keep our fellowship intact, to keep that growth going, We need to apply John chapter 1, verse 9, to confess our sin before him. Corey Ten Boom, uh, in her book, Tramp for the Lord, written many years ago, she said this. She said, it was uh, was 1947. I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And it was the truth they needed uh, most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. And then God places a sign out there that says what? No fishing allowed. Sanctified, perfected, forgiven. We're going to hand uh, service back to the campuses now. And um, here in the Southfields, in just a second, our worship team's going to come out. But as they do, I'd like for you to take that basket and, and pass that along the aisle and um, get ready to do some, uh, some business w- with God. What is it that's holding you back from a full orb, full out following of Jesus Christ? Some of you know that answer just like that, don't you? You know that there's something going on in your life that that you're kind of fondling and you're keeping and you need to deal with it. And you need to deal with it today. And I want you to write that down on a card if you're serious about it. And then in a minute, while the worship team's singing in just a second, you can walk down and you can put it at the cross. You can put it at a cross as a way of saying, I'm serious about this. 
I, I, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to take the steps to deal with this issue in my life. Some of you are saying, man, I, I, I know I'm not where I need to be, but I don't know what the issue is, and I'm not going to be able to figure it out in these three minutes you're giving me here, right? That's fair enough. It's fair. So just write down on the card, God, help me, deal, help me learn what, it, what the issue is. Help, help me discover what I need to deal with. One more thing. If you're a player in the NFL, um, you're going to fumble the ball sometimes if you're back, right? It's going to happen. If you're a receiver, you're going to drop a pass. If you're a quarterback, you're going to throw an interception. If you're a lineman, you're going to miss a block or a tackle if you're a defensive lineman. It's just going to happen. And there, you're going to see it on ESPN that week, the block you missed or the interception you threw. That's just part of the deal. But if you're in the NFL, the worst possible critique you can ever get is not you dropped a pass or fumbled the ball or threw an interception or missed a block. What's the worst critique you can ever get? You just gave half an effort. You were coasting on that play. You quit. There's an elite player this week who's been skewered all week because last Sunday, he's on offense, went out for a pass, the pass got intercepted, and instead of pursuing it, he just stopped. Just stopped, put his hands on his hips. And all this week on ESPN, that picture's been showed over and over again. He quit. Could he have caught the guy? Who knows? Probably not. But he quit. When you think of where you are in your Christian life, is that a picture for you? Are you coasting? God did not call, God did not sanctify us, perfect us, and forgive us to coast. God did not sanctify us, perfect us, and forgive us to quit. God did not perfect us and sanctify us and forgive us to give a half-baked effort in our Christian life. So what do you got to do to do everything God's calling you to do? 